Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity as always to gather together to sing and hear the word preached. God, I pray as we do that now that you would speak to us because all of this is worship, God. We want to rightly put you in your place and ascribe to you the glory and honor that is due your name. Not only because you deserve it, God, but, but that is what is best for us. It's the place where we get the most joy and satisfaction because that's what we were made for. And so God, as we open up your word now, I pray that you would speak to us. Help me to communicate it in a way that honors you. Then help all of us to see and to hear the truth that is in it because God, we do believe that you have a word for us. And I pray God that you would um, open our eyes to see this and to take joy in it. And God, we thank you again. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, we're gonna be in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we were in this chapter last week. We kicked it off for Mother's Day, and I hope all you ladies, all you moms had a great Mother's Day last week, and I hope at some point in time, either on the weekend or during the week, somebody gave you a moment. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you have to go back and watch that, because Mother's Day, uh, one of the greatest gifts we can give is a moment, and uh, that is just a chance to relax or to take a break. I was in a gas station yesterday, and there was a mom and two little kids, and I must have heard the word mother or mom about 45 times in a span of about 35 seconds. And that came to my mind. I'm like, oh, that poor mama needs a moment, right? And it's like, mama, 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 mama. It's like on repeat. So I hope at least last Saturday you said data, all right, and gave mamas a break. But we're glad to be back in the house today and in John chapter 12. We're gonna just pick up where we left off last week, and I'm referencing that because I'm gonna kind of go back to it, and it's what we just read on the screen where Mary has this encounter with Jesus, and she anoints him. She uses this expensive perfume that was a year's worth of wages in today's dollars. That was $50,000, and I, I am pleased to report that my wife didn't spend anything like that on Mother's Day last weekend, although she still is the fraud, and, um, and so I'm still inspecting that daily. But Mary takes this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus with it. And the Bible tells us that this was six days before Passover, and this is what now, looking back, we call Passion Week. And this was anointing Jesus for his death and his burial. And so that week was the beginning of the end for Jesus. And what we're going to see today is what is called the triumphal entry. And this is when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem as he is going to prepare himself as the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. Everything that has happened up until this point in history, in Jewish history, was pointing to this moment, but they didn't understand the significance of it, as you're going to see. But now looking back, we can understand the significance of it, and that is what I want us to learn from this text. And so let's go to John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 9, and we'll work our way down to verse 19. 
It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's quite interesting to me that in this text, you kind of get a feel of even modern day political tension and discourse. Because you see here Jesus, although he's not trying to, his goal is not to amass a crowd or amass a following. His goal is to be faithful to his father. That's his goal. That's his mission. He has one mission in his life. It was what he was born for. It is what he started his ministry for, was to give himself as a sacrifice for many. But as Jesus is starting to do these things, as he's starting to minister to people, as he's starting to literally raise people from the dead, the word gets out. And that's not a surprise. And they didn't even have social media back then, but word just spread fast. Did you hear about this guy named Jesus? He raises Lazarus from the dead. That is something to brag about. That's something to talk about, which is why we've been talking about it for weeks. And as I've said, it's arguably his second greatest miracle that he's ever done. Because that doesn't happen normally every day. But what's interesting to me is as Jesus starts amassing this crowd of followers, and you're going to see them in just a second and how they act and what they do, but Jesus' goal isn't to attract a crowd or a following, but he is. And then the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, and they were of a certain political persuasion, their first thought is, we're going to kill him. Not only are we going to kill Jesus, we're going to kill Lazarus which is quite comical to me on the surface. I'm not making light of threats, but what I'm saying is it's quite comical. They're going to kill the dude who just came back to life. Like, that's what we'll do. He wasn't dead enough before. We're going to take him out. And this is what I find comical. It's like, well, Jesus already raised him once. And your solution is to take him out? Don't you think that if Jesus wants him alive, he can overcome your solution and bring him back again? But, but the reason why I'm pointing this out is because that's the only way they can think. They can only think about this from a human mindset that when their power is being stripped away, that they go to violence and anger. And, and let's just try to stamp this out with brute force. And the reason why I want to point this out is because that is almost always the mantra of the mobs. Let's try to do this evil. Let's try to take this out. Let's try to stamp this out. And we see that happening even today with violence, protesting, rioting, all kinds of different things saying, we don't like what's happening here. And what they start doing is they start attacking the people instead of attacking the ideas. But here's what I would like to submit to you. If we learn how to attack ideas and not people, then we actually, watch this, have the ability to show that our idea is better because it can stand on its own. But you want to know why people start attacking people instead of ideas? It's because they're afraid their ideas can't stand on their own. 
Because see, when you're not on the side of truth, you have to result to violence. And sadly, you see this throughout church history. And we gotta own this, church. You see this throughout church history when different theories would start coming along and the church's response is, let's burn them at the stake. I mean, and it would be funny if it wasn't true. But, but what I would like to submit to us is, if we have the truth, then what are we so afraid of? See, if we're on the side of truth, then I don't have to worry about taking the tactics of the mobs around me because my idea will stand on its own. So I want you to see this. The moment we start resulting in violence, all we're saying is we don't believe the truth that we believe in enough because it's not strong enough to stand on its own. And there's a phrase that goes around today. It's like, well, you know, I want to be on the right side of history. And, and I get that. And, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing to want. But here's what I'm saying that's a better phrase. I don't want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of truth. Because if I'm on the right side of, his, of, of truth, history will take care of itself. Because history is neutral. It's just the actions of women and men throughout the time. But truth is never changing. And when we look back on actions in the past, we have to be honest about that in the church. Again, there was times in the church when we weren't on the right side of truth. Times like, unfortunately, slavery in this country. The truth is every man and woman is created in the image of God. Every ethnicity on earth created in the image of God. And if I believe that truth then I will treat them like that. And so there are times when the church has, watch this, hasn't been on the wrong side of history, but has been on the wrong side of truth. Which is quite ironic when we as the church follow a guy, as you're gonna see in John 14, 6, says that he is the truth. So when we resort to violence, church, when we resort to destroying the Imago Dei in someone else, it's because we don't believe the truth enough. We're not standing in the power of the truth. See, if I'm standing in the power of the truth, then I can let the nations rage and I don't have to engage in their violent acts because the truth wins. And what's interesting to me is, again, here you got the religious leaders. They were like, let's just put this boy to death. Why? Because it says everyone was going away and believing in Jesus. Now, this is what I want to talk about. This is really kind of the main point of the message. Everyone was going away and believing in Jesus. This phrase, going away, you know, I like words, and you like, I like the meaning of words if you've been around here. This one's a real deep one. It means to move from one place to another. I know, I told you. I like to wow you with my knowledge. But I'm trying to connect it. Going away and believing in Jesus. Here's the connection. When I believe in Jesus... It changes my behaviors. 
When I believe in Jesus, it changes my behaviors. We would call this repentance. And in this simple sentence, it says they were all going away and believing in Jesus. You see the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let me say it to you like this. It's impossible to say, I believe in Jesus, but yet you don't go a different way. Are you with me when I say that? It's impossible to say, I believe in that guy right there. I'm pointing, not pointing to a guy, all right? This is like the, this, here's Jesus. I believe in him. And then you say, well, your master's going that way. Well, I don't believe in him that much. Well, he's going a way I don't like. I don't like him going that way. And watch this. You're going to see this next week, which is why you should be here for, this isn't part two. Next week will be part 48, all right? We do, you know, movies do like part two, part three. We, are way better. we do like part 48, part 49. This is a much better story, y'all. But when Jesus moves, if he's my master, then I move with him. I believe in him, I move with him. And again, this is what I was saying Jesus is gonna get into next week. But we've created this weird space within Christianity where all these people can quote unquote believe in Jesus, but they don't go away with Jesus. They don't walk with Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. And it's weird We've separated out belief and behavior. And what I'm trying to show you is if you believe him, it will change your behavior. Now let's go back to Mary last week. Mary pours out this expensive perfume on Jesus, $50,000 perfume. And what I told you last week was on the surface that looks ridiculous. But when you dig in and you see the, the dignity, value, and worth of Jesus, it makes total sense. In fact, it's the only rational thing. When you understand the infinite value of Jesus, then it changes all your values. So I'm, I'm still using Mary as an example to see Mary believed in Jesus and then her behavior coordinated with her belief. Why? Because Mary understood something. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. I'm proud of this alliteration. I'm just calling this the principle of preeminence. The principle of preeminence. And I've given you the definition of preeminence because it's an expensive word. The fact of surpassing all others, above or before, superior surpassing. See, Mary understood that Jesus was preeminent. Now, if you know anything about the English language, you got a prefix on here, which is quite interesting because the prefix is pre. Pre-fix. It means before, right? And so when we're talking about Jesus being pre Imminent, the word imminent means superior, above. And when we attach the prefix of pre 
on the word imminent, pre-imminent, we're saying not only is he superior, but he's before all other things that claim to be superior. He is the most superior. And this is the principle that I'm trying to get us to incorporate into our life, which is why I called it the principle of preeminence. See, the principle of preeminence is this. I recognize that Jesus is above, before, greater, surpassing in value of anything else in my life. So therefore, everything in my life is going to circulate around him. He is the center. He is first and he went first. And so therefore, my entire life is going to hover around him. Speaking of the evils of church history, what's quite interesting is when we found out, you know, centuries ago, that the earth was not the center of the solar system. We killed the dude, the church killed the dude who was claiming, no, the earth is not the center, the sun is the center. And when you start telling people that they are not the center, they get angry. And isn't it quite interesting? And I mean, you know, Christian theology can be very punny at times. The sun is the center. S-O-N. And in our faith, the sun is the center. Sorry, S-U-N, the sun. I'm sitting here thinking, hold on, I just said S-O-N. What is the sun? Oh, it's S-O-N. Got to correct what The sun, S-U-N, S-O-N. See, the sun is the center. Everything revolves around the sun. And see, Mary got that. That's why expensive perfume in the presence of Jesus seemed cheap. And I've joked about this before, but isn't it amazing how in church, $100 seems so big, but at Target, it seems so small. Right? Come on, somebody. People were like, well, I'm just going to tip the Lord, but then when I go to Prime Steakhouse, oh, I'll, pay, I'll drop 100 for a steak. That's a st- and listen, hear me, y'all. I ain't going to hate on anybody who drops $100 for a steak. I'm from Texas. We like cows. Pigs are all right for bacon, but when it comes to steak, God bless the cow. So I don't have a problem with that, but but here's what I'm saying. Whatever you consider preeminent, everything revolves around that. That is just true in principle. So the question is not... Is something preeminent in your life? The question is just simply what or who? There is something at the center of your life already that everything around it is circulating. There's something in your life that is above before everything else. And all I'm saying is, and I think what John is arguing here and what he's trying to get us to see, this is the entire point of the gospel, is that someone is Jesus He is the preeminent one. And therefore, the only place he can take in your life is as the preeminent one. Which is interesting. I've already mentioned kind of the political divisiveness that occurs and the tensions and things like this. But you know what the biggest problem in our world today? One of them 
is everybody is thinking in terms of right and left instead of above. See, I just happen to believe that if you live by the principle of preeminence of Jesus in your life, you will not nicely square with either side. Because Christianity is not a left or right thing. It's an up or down thing. Jesus is not left or right because he can't be held within human established categories. He blasts all categories because he's above and beyond. And so the question is, am I thinking, am I living in a way where Jesus is at the center and he gets to determine the way that I go? See, it says everybody was going away and believing in Jesus. So belief is going to lead to a change in direction. Again, we call that repentance. Let me give you a quote, one of my most favorite quotes. If you know anything about church history, it wasn't all bad. There was obviously a lot of good. But in what was called now the Protestant Reformation, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, who is where Martin Luther King got his name from, he wrote a thing called 95 Theses. He posted it, nailed it to a church door, and the very first line of that thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life. And here's what I'm trying to get us to see about this principle of preeminence. So often, so many of us speak of repentance only in past tense terms. Yes, I repented when I came to Jesus. But here's what we have to understand. And I don't know if you figured this out about yourself yet. I have. And I don't say that arrogantly because what I'm about to say is I figured out how bad I really am. Because, you know, when I came to Christ, I put Christ at the center and he was there for about two weeks. Have you found this out to be true? Then you're like, oh, I like this thing back at the center. And then, you know, I come to church and feel convicted. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put Jesus back in the center. And then I, you know, get back into the world. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put this back at the center. And then I go to church camp and I put Jesus back at the center. And I pay this. You ever, have, am I describing anybody's life here? And what we have to realize is when Christ called you to himself, repentance isn't just something that you did, it's something that you began to do. It did start, but it will never stop until you meet Jesus. What's interesting to me is these two verbs, were going away and believing in Jesus, are written in the Greek in what's called the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense means this. It's an action that started in the past with no end date. Meaning it started back there, but it has no assessment of when it will stop, which means it's going to go on and on and on and on forever, which is why we call it imperfect, because you never reach a state of perfection. And we live in a world where there's a lot of us that are perfectionists and we're always trying to make sure everything around us is perfect, everything's in line, all the details. 
But if we're not careful, really that's coming out of an over-anxiousness in our heart because we're trying to control everything around us because we know we can't control the one thing and that's within us. So we're trying to order our public world because our private world is so disordered. And so it becomes a control mechanism. Instead of realizing, you, want, you know what? I'm always going to be in a state of imperfection when it comes to following Jesus, but I'm trying to be one step closer to it today than I was yesterday. See, it says they were going away. Notice it doesn't tell you where they were going away to. Where were they going to? Wherever Jesus is. And see, following Jesus isn't about getting to a place. It's about staying close to a person. And so our entire life is one of repentance. Here's the good news. The good news is grace covers past, present, and future sins. So it's not a matter of whether or not you're forgiven or in a state of grace. It's just a matter of whether or not you have confessed it to Jesus. Man, I'm sorry. And he's like, okay, it's all right. Let's take the next step. See, repentance, and this is what is hard for us because our entire faith is built upon we can't do it. But because we're sinners, we think, we think, oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now let me get busy perfecting myself for you. And that's not how it works. Jesus is not looking for us to get a gold star in attendance so that we can show him, hey, I nailed it yesterday. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I know. You can't nail it. That's why I came and they nailed me. All I need you to do is confess to me, watch this, that you're trying to do it without me. This is why I love Jesus. Jesus never chastises those who just want to be close to him and go where he goes but he does chastise those who think that they have it all figured out and they don't need him. That's the religious leaders. But you see these crowds of people just going away, walking imperfectly with Jesus. So repentance is simply, you know what? Yeah, I put something else at the center, Jesus. My bad. I want you back as the center. The principle of preeminence. It is a daily walk of going wherever he goes. Now look at the next couple of verses. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this is what we call, again, the triumphal entry. This is why the Sunday before Easter is always called Palm Sunday. 
Because when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the other gospel accounts highlight this as well, this crowd of people that were going after him and were believing him put palm branches down as he walked in to the city, as he was coming in, because palm branches were a sign of royalty, were a sign of saying, you are royal. And so they were recognizing his preeminence. They were recognizing, oh my gosh, the king is here. One interesting other tidbit as I was studying this, what's interesting about palm trees is palm trees take about 30 to 35 years to produce their best fruit. Their, their best fruit-bearing years are in between 30 and 35. And one commentator noted this, that in the Jewish system, you could not be a high priest until you were 30. And at 30 is when Jesus started his ministry. And at 33 is when he produced his best fruit as signified by the palms laying down. Jesus was about to enter into his most fruitful season. But on the surface, it was gonna look like the worst one. It was the season of suffering. And haven't you noticed that in your own life? That it's out of the seasons of suffering come your most fruitful seasons. And this is where we struggle. Because let's be honest, when we follow Jesus, we want Jesus to treat us like we're royalty. We want Jesus to lay down the palm branches for us because people are like, well, I follow Jesus. I'm blessed and highly favored. Yes, if you're in Christ, you are blessed and highly favored. But a lot of times what you're blessed with is seasons of suffering. That's what you're blessed with. Was there anyone more faithful than Jesus? Yes or no? No. You in church, you know that. Was there anyone who suffered more than Jesus? Where did we get this idea that fruitfulness and faithfulness is a lack of suffering? They go together. And let's be honest, our biggest moments of despair with Jesus is when we think he hasn't been good enough to us. We think, Jesus, you should have made this way easier. You should have put palm branches down in my way. You should have made the path simpler and better. Why is everybody else succeeding and I'm suffering? What's interesting about this word going away that you, I was referencing earlier, it's a sign of repentance. The very next word in the concordance, which means it's very similar to this word, is the word obedience. So what does going away after Jesus look like? It looks like obedience. It's what Jesus said in John 15. We'll get into it probably next year. If you love me, you will obey me. But here's what we wrestle with. We think that when we obey, that he should make the way easier. And so therefore, we keep obeying, we keep obeying, we keep obeying until God hasn't done what we think he should do. And we're like, well, fine, I'm gonna quit obeying. But can I just tell you, that's what kids do. 
I was having a conversation with Natalie yesterday and my wife, Lindsay, and Natalie was upset about something that we didn't do that she wanted to do. And then she said, if you'll take me to Brewster's ice cream, I'll have a better attitude. And I said, hold up. If you don't get a better attitude, I'm not taking you to Brewster's ice cream. Because daddy and mama don't play like that. It's not my job to answer every request for you and then you base your attitude and enjoyment of us on that. See, that's what children do. And by children, I'm, I'm referring to people who aren't quite mature enough yet. But isn't that what we do with Jesus all the time? I'll follow you wherever you go, but not there, but not there, but not there. No, 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 no. See, when you make him preeminence, you give up the right to negotiate where he goes. And here's what's interesting, if you know the story. They put Jesus at preeminence. They have palm branches. You are royal. You are king. There's no one like you. Hosanna! And the word Hosanna, we just brought it over from Hebrew into Latin and into English. It's made up of two Hebrew words, and they are a cry, and it means, save me. And so it was a cry, and it's in the Psalm, Psalm 118. It's all throughout the Psalms. Save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. So when Jesus shows up, they are looking for Jesus as their political savior. It's interesting. We do this every four years, too. And a bunch of people go after them and anoint them until they fail them. Have you not learned that lesson yet? And so the, the followers are fickle because at the beginning of the week, they're treating him like royalty. Do you know what they, this same crowd did at the end of the week? Crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas. We want the murdering thief. We don't want this king. Why? Because they were following him based upon their understanding of what he should do. And when he didn't do it, they turned on him. And hear me, church. Jesus is not truly preeminent if that's how you follow him. You don't know if he's really your king until he's disappointed you and you followed him anyway. Because watch this, until that happens, you were only following him for what he could do for you, not for who he is. But when you see who he is, then you say, I'll follow you anywhere, even to the cross. And that is the wrestle. You say, well, how do we do that? Let me give you two Old Testament verses that this verse is based on. Um, it's interesting when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, sometimes you'll find it hard to find the exact reference because Old Testament or New Testament writers a lot of time would quote from multiple sources of the Old Testament and bring them together. And it's not that they were 
And what they were, it's not that they were saying like, oh, it is written in this verse. And then you're like, oh, see, it's not in there. No, it's pulling together all the Old Testament and showing you how it fulfills in Jesus. Because there's multiple, all kinds of things in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. So this reference isn't just one Old Testament verse, it's two. And I'm going to show you both of them. First one is Zechariah 9.9. I have this on the screen. It says, rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus coming in on the donkey for triumphal entry was a fulfillment of prophecy. And what's interesting is Jesus intentionally came in on a colt. Why? Because a colt was a sign of peace. Because see, kings who were at war rode in on a horse. And it's interesting that when Jesus returns again, what does the book of Revelation say he'll be riding on? A white horse. So he will come as a conquering king. And he will judge. But the first time he came, he came as Isaiah calls him a suffering servant. of Pete, The prince of peace. He was coming to make peace with who? with us and God. That's what he was coming to do. And so all the Old Testament writers were looking forward to this day when their king would come. And so at the beginning of the week, they were like, he's here. He's here. Hosanna. This is the king. If he can raise people from the dead, then he can free us from this persecution that we're under the Roman government. He can come and overthrow And they missed it that he didn't come in on a horse. He came in on a donkey saying, I'm not here to overthrow that kingdom. I'm here to overthrow a darker kingdom. And I'm going to do it through death. Look at another verse, Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. So John takes two verses like this and puts them together. And here's what I found so interesting. Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, your king is coming. Isaiah says, fear not, your king is coming. And then John says, fear not, your king is coming. And you put those together, because Zechariah says he'll come on a colt. You put those together and I thought it's interesting. Zechariah says, rejoice. Isaiah says, fear not. What is the key between rejoicing and fearing? See, it says, say to those with an anxious heart. You know, we talk a lot about anxiety today, and that's good. We should talk about it. We shouldn't just suffer in silence. But the greatest antidote to our current cultural anxiety that we're facing. And again, I'm not talking about chemical things. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. And I'm not trying to act like this is the only solution. But what I'm, when I say cultural anxiety, I'm talking about just the general dread and fear that we have over the current events of the world. And we've been through some pretty dreadful events. The greatest anxiety buster, the greatest way to deal with our fear is rejoice. Rejoice. And see, here's where I was talking about earlier how children act. As children, we act like this. 
I can't rejoice as long as this thing that I'm not getting or something that I'm wanting that's not here yet that's making me fearful. So we think I can't rejoice until this is dealt with. But true biblical rejoicing is saying, you know what? I'll rejoice in my fear. Not in that I'm fearful, but I will rejoice even though I'm fearful because I know my king is coming. My king is coming and he will make it right. You say, well, look at the world. Look at what's happening. Look at COVID. Look at, the, look at Ukraine. Look at all these countries. And we can get such short-sighted vision and, and, and forget that it wasn't like for 6,000 years of human history, it's been awesome. Every generation has their own fears. Every generation has their own cultural anxieties. And the solution in dealing with that is not going to be found in a political person coming and making everything right because they can't. The solution to that is realizing that one day this suffering servant will come back as a conquering king. And he will make it right. This is why the greatest, most often repeated command in the Bible is fear not. Don't be afraid. And we as Christians have the most evidence that he will come. Why? Because he already came. He already came. And so I believe And when I say belief, I'm not saying like, I hope that it may come true. I'm saying I've built my life on the belief that he will come. Why? Because he did come. And he's not a liar. So therefore, I don't have to fear when everything around me gives way. I can rejoice. Even in the midst of the moments when I don't feel like the preeminent one is doing what I want. I can't just bathe him with palm branches when he's doing what I want. I have to bathe him with palm branches when he's not doing what I want because I know his ways are better. Let's look at the last couple verses. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Side note. I know what I'm talking about is hard to understand, but here's the good news of the Bible. The Bible just told you they didn't understand it either. They didn't understand it either. They were like, yeah, riding in on donkey, palm branches. I'm down with that guy. Getting captured and up on a cross. I don't know if I'm down with that guy. Which is why Peter denied him three times because in Peter's feeble mind, he thought Jesus lost. But when Jesus came back from the dead, he realized, oh, he won. But he won by losing. Again, we'll get into that next week. But look at this. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Church, if there's one thing I could encourage you to do, it is study what has been written. It is written. 
But yet we as a bunch of Christians that a lot of times fickly follow Jesus are so confused by what's going on because we haven't read what's been written. This is what I told you a few weeks ago. It will get worse. The pain will increase. Do not believe any person that comes and tells you that they have the ability to solve all your problems because we call those people antichrists. And there will be many of them, the Bible says. It will get worse, and then our king will come. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. Look at the last verse, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you have gained nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What's interesting is from the Pharisaical point of view, all they could see was in terms of political gains and losses. That's all they could see. They could only see in human terms of power. We're losing. And because we're losing, see, here's what they were the most afraid of. They were the most afraid of that Rome would hear Jesus has his followers. He's the king of the Jews. And they would come and stamp him out, which they did. And they would take all the power away from the Jewish people, which they did. See, all they could see was in terms of earthly kingdoms, of earthly power. They couldn't see beyond to eternal things, spiritual things, supernatural things. And so all they could see is, look, he's winning, we're losing, everybody's going after him. And it says, look, you've gained nothing. You've accomplished nothing. Nothing, that's what the word means. And here's why I'm saying this to you. When you make Jesus preeminent, when you put him as the center and everything in your life revolves around him, the Bible describes it like this, and this is what we're gonna see next week. You gain that by losing. Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. Friends, listen to me. When you go after Jesus, all your friends and family who don't know Jesus will say you are losing everything. You're gaining nothing. Your CPA might even tell you, why do you keep giving so much to the church? Why are you so generous? Why do you keep, you're not gaining anything. Let me ask it to you like this. Would you still do it if you didn't get an IRS tax break? I'm not saying it's wrong for us to get a tax break. I'll take it as long as they give it. Yes and amen, twice on Sunday. But that's not why I do it. I don't do it because I gain something by doing it. I do it because he's worth it. See, when you live your life with Jesus at the center, everyone around you who doesn't understand his value and worth will say, you're gaining nothing. And you'll say, oh, friend, but I've gained everything. 
This is why I put up the quote last week from Jim Elliott that said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, when I make Jesus a center, I have to be prepared to lose everything in this life. But that will pale in comparison to what I gain in the next. Because see, I got Jesus. And if I got Jesus, I got everything. So the story of the triumphal entry and Mary and this crowd is don't just make Jesus preeminent when it's convenient for you. Make Jesus preeminent every day because it's the only rightful place that he deserves. And yes, it will get hard. Yes, it will get inconvenient, but you stay obedient. And the Bible says that everything that you lost in this world, I will multiply back to you in the next. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. As Colossians says, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the maker of all things. He is before all things. But yet he entered into our temporal time, put on flesh and dwelt among us. God, his glory is shown in his faithfulness to the end. He was obedient unto death. Therefore, Philippians says, you've exalted him above every name and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And so God, I pray that we would learn that lesson now because if we learn that lesson then, it'll be too late. But if we can learn that lesson now that you are preeminent, you have infinite value and worth and therefore, we want to go away with you. We will walk away from everything else. And God, will do it as imperfectly as we can. We know that you have to give us the grace to do it. But God, help us to do it because you are worth it. Not to do it just when it's convenient. Not to just shower you and rejoice in you when you're doing exactly what we asked, but to learn how to rejoice in you when you don't. Because God, we want to grow up into him that is our head. But God, we also know right now that there's people here listening, watching that have never placed Jesus at the center. They have never confessed that he is Lord and therefore reoriented their entire life around him. And so God, I pray right now you'd save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want you to understand what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to believe 
and the king who came and gave his life for you. And the king that will come again and resurrect you. And so if you're willing to make that king your Lord, you'll be saved. So if you want to pray with me, you don't have to do it out loud, but if you've never trusted in Jesus, it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son Jesus in my place for my sin. I'm trusting in Jesus, the preeminent one, the king above all kings, but who gave his life for me. To put my sin on him, his righteousness on me, save me. Hosanna. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close, if you just prayed and trusted Jesus, this is the greatest day of your life. And I promise you, life won't go always how you want, but life will lead to blessing and favor eternally as you follow him. So if that's you and you're here in one of our locations, would you just simply lift your hand up if you just prayed? We just have a gift we wanna give you, thank you. And then those of us who have trusted Jesus, I hope this is a reminder that you're gonna make mistakes. It's an imperfect science in following Jesus. So if you've realized, you know what, there's some other things that in my life are competing with the preeminence of Jesus. My own success, my own net worth, my own other identities, then simply all you have to do is confess that and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Help me to keep you as the center and walk away from these other competing things. Father, thank you. Not only is there no message like the gospel, there's no person like Jesus. And so, God, I thank you that not only is he preeminent in the universe, but we have the privilege and honor of making him preeminent of our lives. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the grace to do that. And we want to be a church that always lives out our core mission to love Jesus. We're putting him as the center, as the focus. It is his church. These are his people and so God, help us to walk with you when we don't understand in those seasons of suffering, knowing that if we remain obedient and close to you, you will bring about fruitfulness. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.